All right, Romans chapter 13. If you would, let's open to that. Romans chapter 13. Let me give you the outline. It's uh, posted, I'm sure, on the PBI group already, but for those of you that haven't seen it, the chapter, I believe, breaks into three parts very nicely. Part 1, verses 1 to 7, ordained of God. Ordained of God. We're going to look at the, at the uh, political system, actually. Power structure. And then part 2, owed to man. Owed to man. What do you owe man? Verses 8 to 10. Owed to man. And then part three, our salvation is nigh. Verses 11 to 14, our salvation is nigh. So before we jump into verse one, let's bow our heads together, please. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you this evening that we get to sing these songs, that we can look forward to the day when not only we get to see each other at church, fellowship together, we look forward to that. But Lord, we look forward to sitting around the throne of God all the saints dressed in light. Oh, what fellowship. Lord, we look forward to that day when we sit and meet at Jesus' feet. Please, might it be even during this lesson, call us home. But until that time, Lord, please continue to work in our hearts even through this lesson. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, chapter 13, Romans 13, verse 1. Let me remind you, broad look. Yeah, Paul is not getting down to all the nuances of these subjects, he is painting with broad brushstrokes. Keep that in mind. Verse 1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Now, I like how he's worded that. Let every soul, lost or saved, right? doesn't matter. Because what Paul is addressing in verses 1 to 7 has to do with the governments of, of nations. It has to do with the power structures that oversee society. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. To ordain it is to establish it or to set it up. This is the way God built it. You can say it like that. There is no power but of God. Now, it's, it's easy to take verse 1 and run down the wrong path with it. So let's get our bearings straight right away. When we talk about the powers that be, what are we discussing? Well, we're talking about offices. We're talking about a power structure that we usually refer to as the government. This, could, this starts right at the very top, a king, a president, whoever's first in charge. And it works its way down through various offices and officers, getting down to things like soldiers, policemen, Right? They have authority to oversee the behavior of society. That power structure was set up and established by God. Say, so where did he set it up? How do we know this? Genesis chapter 1. God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. God intended for man to be able to govern himself, for mankind now, it's not as if God just left us to ourselves and said, make it up as you go. God wrote the law, the work of the law in our heart, in all of our hearts. And remember this from Romans chapter 2, so that we could excuse or accuse one another. See, so God built into us the ability to govern ourselves. Now, it is based on that law, that he put, that moral code that he put in our heart. 
There is no power but of God. So this, these various offices, God has established it. The temptation would be to say every person who occupies that office has been especially chosen by God to fill that office. So every policeman, every governor, every mayor, every president, every king, God is the one who put them in that place. Is it true that God in history has at times raised up certain men to occupy an office? Yes, absolutely. Some of you, it's probably already popped into your mind. We recently looked at it in Romans chapter 9. God raised up Pharaoh, right? Now, he had a very specific purpose in mind. He wanted to accomplish some things. and There was a reason that he chose Pharaoh for that occasion. Uh, you can also see this in, in King Cyrus, the king of Persia. Isaiah, at the end of Isaiah 44, the beginning of chapter 45. And there are other places in Isaiah where it was prophesied that God had especially chosen Cyrus to, re, to command his, the, the Jewish temple to be rebuilt. God worked through that king. But I don't know of any verse that says every single president, king, monarch, whatever it might be, every individual that fills that office was put there by God. Now, take your Bible, look at Luke chapter 4. Let me show you quickly that why I think we need to balance this with some other verses. Luke chapter 4. We have to make a difference between the position and the person. Right? The position and the person. There is the office. There is the officer. You understand? So you can look at the office of president. That's the position. Then the person, Ramaphosa, that fills it. Donald Trump that fills it. See, those are two separate things. And I think that's an important division to recognize. Luke chapter 4, look at verse uh, 5 and 6. This is the temptation of Jesus. It says, And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Verse 6, And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. So the power over these nations had been delivered unto Satan. And to whomsoever I will give it. Well, that would indicate that the devil is able to raise up certain men and install them in various positions. And I think that's a lot easier for us to believe, <laughs> given the current state of politics pretty much worldwide. Yeah? Come back to Romans chapter 13. Let me, let me emphasize this a little further. God can raise up a man. The devil can raise up a man. God can allow the devil to raise up a man. And then I believe there are times where men raise up men and go into a particular office. That does not overthrow. The fact that there are different persons people that occupy these offices, that doesn't overthrow what we're reading in chapter 13, verse 1. The powers that be are ordained of God. Power, as in what? The person or the position? The position. That power structure, the various power structures that you see all over the world, God set it up for society to govern themselves. Let me give you an example of another God-ordained institution and how it operates. Look at chapter 12. Verse 4, 
For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. Now, you see within the body of Christ various offices. You have the office of apostle. You learned this with Garrett the other night. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. See, those are various offices. Now, the people that occupy those offices, we would like to think that they are all God-ordained, but you and I both know that there are some people that put themselves in the office of pastor or apostle, missionary, whatever the case might be. So let's, let's go back to chapter 13. There is no power but of God. God is the one that gave mankind the right, the authority, the ability to govern themselves. The powers that be are ordained of God. Even before God created mankind, there was already an authority structure and a power structure in heaven. Right? There's God, there's seraphim, cherubim, there's an archangel, there are angels, there's a power structure to it. Principalities and powers. That's how Paul refers to the spiritual realm. Verse 2. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. So if you're going to fight against government structure, if you are an anarchist, it's not just the government that you're resisting. You're resisting the ordinance of God. You are resisting the way God set it up. The idea that we don't want people monitoring us and watching over us. We should be able to just do what we want and govern ourselves. You know, we shouldn't have policemen, especially right now in America. I think most of you are aware of it. I, I know it's not, it's not here, but you've probably heard about this massive uh, movement in America to overthrow the police. And in some areas, they have. Mobs of people have rushed into police stations and ran the policemen out and took over a town. It, I, I know up in, I think it's Seattle, Washington, that happened. And the mayor of the city said it should happen. Actually let these anarchists do it, condoned it. To overthrow a power structure, you are going to crumble society very quickly. God set it up for a reason this way. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Let's not get carried away. The word damnation does not always mean eternal damnation in the fires of hell. It, it can mean that. The context will always tell you what sort of damnation you're dealing with. The same thing is true of salvation. The word salvation does not always refer to the salvation of your soul. Now, we know this from Romans 8. We saw a, a passage talking about our body being saved, right? So you always have to let the context define how the word is being used. Interestingly enough, that word damnation, the Greek word that gives us that is krima, 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 like we would say C-R-I-M-E, crime, right? We pronounce it different, but it's the word for crime. What you're doing is when you resist these laws that you find within a society, you're going to get punished. You're going to get punished. You're going to get in trouble if you resist it. And you should. You're not going to be able to go to God and say, God, I, I think that all of these laws and this system, I, I, I don't want to live under this anymore. So God, get me out of this mess. God's not going to back you up on that. Now, let's also be careful here. 
Does this mean that every single person that occupies an office is a good person? No. Does it mean that every law in a government is a righteous and upright law? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But again, remember, Paul is stepping back and looking at this through a long lens. He's looking at the bigger picture. Yes, there, are, there is corruption. There are corrupt laws. There are corrupt politicians, corrupt policemen. We get that. We get that. And when you deal with that, right, when that political system is forcing you into a position where you either have to do something wrong or you won't survive, you have a tough decision to make. Just like the apostles, we ought to obey God rather than man. And God forbid we, we find ourselves in that condition. But verse 3, this is the way God intended it for be, uh, to be. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Now see, that's the way it should work. The rulers are there to punish evildoers within society. That's what we expect. But the Bible is full of examples of people in positions of authority that punished the apostles, that persecuted them. They had Jesus crucified, right? There are multiple examples of how this went wrong. That doesn't mean that we say, down to the government, burn all the government buildings, riot in the street, overthrow... that. No, we still have to respect the fact that God ordained this power structure. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? You, you should respect the fact that if you do something wrong and break their laws, they are going to punish you. That's a healthy fear to realize that there are consequences for your actions. It, it helps keep society in line. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. Now again, that's the way it's supposed to work. That's the way God ordained it. I realize that there are plenty of times where that doesn't happen, and that's a shame. And it's fine for the citizens of a country to speak out and say, there's corruption going on. There's an abuse of power. We should speak out. If I can recommend this balance, you should always honor the office. But you don't have to always honor the person who occupies the office. Do you understand the difference? I will obey the laws and the regulations set out by the president and by the government officials. I will, I will submit as long as they're not asking me to do anything that is sinful or against God. But that does not mean that I have to say the president of this or that country or the mayor of this or that city is a good person. You see, there's a difference between honoring the person and honoring the position. By the way, this same principle applies no matter what power structure you're dealing with, even within a church. I, I respect the position of pastor, but I don't respect every man that calls himself a pastor. This works within the power structure of a home. You should respect, honor father and mother. Those, that's the office, father and mother. But not every father and mother is worthy of any sort of praise, right, as individuals. So you've you got to make that distinction. Verse 4, For he is the minister of God to thee for good. So, 
a servant, a minister. God has created this office, and the person filling that office, he's there for your benefit. He's, he's there to help. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. Why? For he beareth not the sword in vain. You, do you see how the context defines the damnation? Verse 2, you'll, you'll get damnation. What, what kind of damnation? What kind of punishment? The sword, not hellfire. Right? He beareth not the sword in vain. Now this speaks to a, a, a certain social issue that sometimes comes up. People want to know about corporal punishment or capital punishment. This seems to, at the very least, support the idea of capital punishment, of the death penalty. Now, the argument could be made that the sword is there not to be putting people to death, but maybe to cut off a hand, right? Because that was often done in, in ancient societies and still does, by the way, happen today. I have seen many Malawians with no hands, many, many Malawians have had their hands cut off because that's how they deal with thieves out in the village. It's a sad case, but it's, tell you what, it certainly cut back on crime in those villages. I'm, I'm not saying it's the right way to handle it, but there it is. I, I think, though, and there are other verses that would support it as well, that Paul had no issue with uh, the death penalty. But that's a social issue we're not going to dig deep into tonight, but this verse does seem to support it at least. He beareth not the sword in vain, for he is a minister of God. Now, we hear the word minister, we think duomini. We think pastor, uh, predicar. We think a preacher. Minister of God is in serving a particular purpose that God ordained. Right. So this could be a politician, a policeman, something of that nature. For he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Now this also speaks against vigilante justice. Right? There, there should be a system within a society for punishing uh, evildoers. To leave that up to every person to decide how to divvy out punishments on those that do evil. You, I get it that there are a few people that are quite upright and will make fair judgments and offer the proper and necessary punishments. But if you just say, listen, somebody does you wrong, Punish them as you see fit. Oh my goodness, you will have chaos incredibly quickly running through the streets. You've got to do all things decently and in order. You've got to have some organization for that. So as attractive as vigilante justice is portrayed and as attractive as sometimes it seems, if, if, you, if you think of it in the long term and in the big picture, it's not going to work, right? The movies, TV shows, they glorify it. There's always some hero that bypasses the system and exacts revenge right, on a certain evil group, but he does it outside of the law. You know that I have a... <laughs> I, I enjoy the superhero-type movies, but, but do you understand that's what a lot of them are? The Avengers, that's what they're all about. Batman, that's what he's all about. They work outside of the law. To, to bring about wrath, which biblically, I, right, it makes for a fancy story, but that's not how society's going to work. Verse 5, wherefore ye must needs be subject, we would say in submission, not only for wrath, not only to protect yourself from the punishment that they can give you, right, to stay out of trouble, but also for conscience sake. 
I don't want to get into trouble, so I will follow the government's laws, but I'm also going to do it because it's just the right thing to do. For conscience sake, if I bypass laws and don't get caught, I still, I'm still going to have trouble sleeping at night because, man, I know that I'm doing it opposite of how God set it up. So, two reasons why you should be subject there. Verse 6, for, for this cause pay ye tribute also. This is why you pay taxes. And this is why taxes are, are acceptable and right and part of God's system. Part of God's system. How does it work in the church? 1 Corinthians 9. If somebody provides a service for you, you provide one back for them. So the pastor feeds you spiritually, you feed him physically. That's, that's a fair trade. Right? That's a biblical system. And in that passage, Paul uses the example, who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? Well, you don't. That's why we pay taxes. So that the police can operate and watch over society. So that politicians can legislate and, and put into action various laws. And I realize that it gets abused. I'm not saying it doesn't. And to be perfectly honest, I don't mind saying this. Right, because I'm not pointing at any one politician. I don't know any of them, to be honest. But I am slightly familiar with the tax system in South Africa. I've had people tell me about it. It is absolutely ludicrous. I, I, I don't know how you function. Now, this is I'm speaking ignorantly. I'm not a financial expert, so maybe I'm way out of my depth here. But I don't see how any country could thrive with that system. Now, does this mean we just say, okay, forget it, never pay taxes? No, no. Jesus said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Right? Jesus isn't against the taxing system. Somebody has to supply uh, the monetary funds and a way for these people to make a living. The people that they're helping should, should uh, supply that. So this is why we pay taxes. They're doing something to help society. God's behind this. I don't know if you should pay the percentage you do, but you should pay him. For for this cause pay you tribute also. For they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. They are always busy. Now, they may not even realize that they're fulfilling God's ordained plan for a power structure in society. Most of them don't see that. But continually, right? That's what it's there for all the time is to benefit society. So you should pay the taxes. Verse 7, render therefore to all their dues. It depends on whatever government office you're dealing with. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom, right? So that tribute, that's more like a tax, and then custom, when you bring merchandise in, right, you have customs officers and they check what's coming in and you have to pay certain fees to move merchandise from one place to another. Uh, yet you want somebody watching over what's coming into your country. You do. Again, I, I realize that in theory, it's the right theory. In practice, it fails a lot of times because people take bribes under the table and, you know, uh, drug dealers, they smuggle stuff in. I get it that it doesn't, doesn't operate at a high level, but it's the right way to do it. Somebody needs to be overseeing what comes in and what goes out, and somebody's got to pay them to do that job. 
custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, such as a soldier, police officer, those that have the authority to punish you, honor to whom honor. So whatever the office requires, as Christians, we should be more than happy to fall in line with God's plan and, according to this chapter, every soul, right? This is obviously the right Christian attitude, but this should be the attitude of society. By the way, if I can just slip in one quick word, because I don't often talk about politics, um, but this does provide me an opportunity. Some people often, well, some people ask if it's right for a Christian to be involved in politics. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all wrong with that. There's nothing biblical that would, that would make you think that a, a politician is any less or potentially less of a Christian because of that position. However, let me also caution you, if a Christian gets into a position in the political system, he should never use that position to force society to be Christian. A politician's job, flip over to 1 Timothy 2, let, let me show you what the aim is, what we should expect from politicians. 1 Timothy 2, look at verse 1 and 2. I exhort, therefore, that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Can, can I sum that up a little? I want to condense that. We want freedom. We want freedom. We want to be free to make the choices that, that our conscience dictates. Now, I realize our conscience should be uh, moved, right? Our heart should be moved by the Spirit, by the Scriptures. Uh, we should, but we should have the freedom. We shouldn't feel the pressure from the government to conform to a certain ideology. And if we don't conform to that, we have to pay extra tax. Or we're going to be persecuted or hunted or killed or we can't own certain things. In Muslim countries, that's how it works. If you live in a Muslim country and you're not Muslim, the, the laws of Islam, the Sharia law, it says you can live in that country, but, and this is in Surah 9, verse 29, you have to pay the jizya, this, this, this foreigner tax. You have to pay extra if you're not Islamic. And they, they brag about how there's no compulsion in religion, right? That's in Surah 2. There's no compulsion in religion. But then if you're not Muslim, you have to pay extra tax. Isn't that a form of compulsion? As a politician, you would strive to ensure that everybody under your authority feels comfortable to make the decision dictated by their conscience. You want freedom. If you want to see this in history, you won't find it in the Catholic Church. You won't find it in the Reformed tradition. Not even close. Not even close, man. You know who first really pushed it? The Baptist. And you really see it. It, was, it, was, it had been around for I want to say decades, but even centuries. But the idea of soul liberty, that every person should be free to decide based on the dictates of their conscience, that was one of the founding ideas that went into America, and it was driven by the, by the Baptist in that country. And then the politicians got a hold of that, and it's a long story that I won't bore you with now, but that's, that's why that country was considered the land of the free. 
And people thought we can escape there so that we don't have to live under the tyranny and the oppression of other ideologies. All right, politics aside, let's move on. Verse number eight, we'll talk now about what is owed to every man. Watch how it's worded in verse eight. Owe no man anything. Now stemming from verse seven, right? Pay the tribute, the custom, give the honor, the fear. So if you owe them a tax, a custom, pay those fees. But verse 8 gets even broader. Owe no man anything. Now if we stop right there, there's already a good lesson. Pay your bills. Pay your bills. I realize sometimes bills stack up because of unexpected problems that come into your life. I get it. You can't look at a person who's in debt and condemn them right away and say, hey, shame on you. Sometimes it was outside of their control, but many times our debt is a result of very poor planning and foolishness on our part. But whatever your financial situation is, make a plan and make the payments according to that plan. Owe no man anything. If you owe money to the bank for your house or your car, you say, oh dear, I have a debt. Now I owe somebody something. I've actually seen preachers use this verse to say you should never take out a loan or a mortgage or a bond because then you owe the bank. But you make a deal with the bank to pay them a certain amount of money each month. So you are paying monthly what is owed. So yes, I realize that in the over 20 years there is a debt, but what about this month? There's a certain amount I have to pay this month, and I paid it this month. So the debt for this month is paid. So I don't see it as a violation, right, to take out a loan of some sort. But be smart about that, right? Don't bite off more than you can chew. Owe no man anything. Except there's one thing that you'll always owe everyone. No matter how much you pay, in the quotes, no matter how much of this you give, you'll always owe more. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. So the law requires certain taxes and customs, etc., to be paid. And the law also requires, right? In every country I know of, if you sign a contract to make payments, you have to honor that. If you want to fulfill any law, right? Any, any moral law, then loving that person is going to allow you to fill, fulfill every law. And that's something, no matter how often you do it, you always owe more of it. And that's why Paul says, owe oh, no man anything except when it comes to love, you're, you'll never be able to pay that debt. Paul says in another place, in Romans actually, I'm a debtor to all men. And it, it does it does tie into to his principle, to the point he's making here. Verse 9, he kind of unpacks this thought a little bit. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, right? So he's given us the idea. We see where he's aiming at. If you go back in the Old Testament, you will find several other laws that might even fit underneath these laws and kind of you know flesh them out a little bit. But we get the idea. Laws that pertain to how you treat other people in society. If there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, 
thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So you've heard me break this down before. You have two, the two great laws. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Under those two, if you want to unpack them a little bit, you get ten. Ten commandments. And the first four of those ten that we read about pertain to God, and the last six pertain to man. Now, if you want to break that down even further, the Old Testament does that. The, the, the law does that. 613 different precepts, laws, statutes, and etc. And it all connects back to those ten. And then those ten break into two categories. So Paul says, when it comes to how you're dealing with society, one law, if you want to make it simple, right? Big picture. Covering it broadly. Just love folks. And if you love them, if you love your neighbor, you're not going to do them wrong. That's his point in verse 10. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now remember, in Paul's day, the big push was to get people, right, the, the Judaizers, get people back into Judaism. We have to follow all these Old Testament ordinances, precepts, laws, and put them under that system. And Paul says, guys, I appreciate that you think this system is going to make people righteous, but we got something better. I got an easier way to go about this, a simpler way. You have Christ come in, he introduces what real love is, and then you take that love he's given you and, and extend it to everybody around you. And in so doing, if you love them, you're not going to hurt them. You're not going to cheat them. You're not going to lie to them. You're not going to be envious or jealous or covet, you're going to be glad that your neighbor has something, even if you don't have it. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Verse 11, we move to a different portion of the chapter now. Our salvation is nigh. Verse 11, and that, knowing the time. You know how easy it is to lose track of time? Almost every Sunday evening, Tuesday evening, I lose track of time. <laughs> I, I try not to let it plague my mind while I'm teaching to mind the clock, but it's easy to just get going on a point and not know the time. And that knowing the time, don't let time get away from you, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. What's he getting at? In other places, Paul says, let us not sleep as do others, right? This spiritual slumber that many Christians experience where they're not paying attention to the spiritual situation around them. They don't realize that the coming of the Lord is drawing nigh, that their time on earth is limited, that you, you cannot keep putting off your spiritual responsibilities, that you need to take seriously your relationship with God and your relationship with the people around you. He says it's high time to awake out of sleep. A lot of times when we think of spiritual sleep, right, we think of backsliding, people getting off into the darkness, and then they take sin lightly. And as soon as you do that, it not only affects your walk with the Lord, but the people around you get affected as well. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 34, Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So in other words, shame on you 
that you're living the way you are, not realizing how it's affecting everyone around you. There are lost people watching you live. You claim to be a Christian, but then sleepwalk through your life. So he says, awake to righteousness. Over in Ephesians 5, he talks about how waking up will, will bring light. And this will play into this passage here. Knowing the time, that it is now high time. Why does he use the phrase high time? Think of an hourglass. Right? You turn the hourglass over and the sand begins to trickle down to the bottom of the hourglass. As time goes on, what happens? The sand that is collecting at the bottom of that hourglass begins to rise. And as it gets higher and higher, right, that means your time is running out. So it is now high time. Paul says, we're, we're just about out of time. Now, if Paul said that almost 2,000 years ago, how high do you think the time is now? Verse 12, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Uh, can I ask you to turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, please? 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, and read with me verse number 5. Well, let's read verses 4 and 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 4, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Talking about the, the day of the Lord and Him coming. Verse 5, Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others. Let us watch and be sober. Now, your attendance code for tonight is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5. And I'd like to point out in that verse, you are children of the day. If you're saved, you are children of the day. Now, come back to Romans 13. Look at verse 12. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Well, that would indicate that we are in a nighttime period, right? nighttime age, if you will, an, an age of darkness. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. But we are children of the day. So how can you say the day is at hand if we are the children of the day? Now, what, Paul's talking about two different things here. In, in verse 12, we're dealing with, I want to say, the, uh, a, a timetable for, for history. A spiritual timetable. Right now, after Jesus went back, he's the light of the world. After he goes up to heaven, the world is in a period of spiritual darkness. But the day is at hand when Jesus, who in the book of Malachi is called the S-U-N, Son of Righteousness, when he comes back, then day springs. The day springs up. Uh, the sun rises. So when you're looking at maybe we could say a prophetic or, or a prophetic look, or a look at God's timetable, we're in this nighttime period. The day is at hand. So the world as a whole is in darkness. But, 1 Thessalonians 5, children of the day, what's going on inside of me? Inside of me as an individual, I got light. I'm awake. The day star is in my heart. Right? So, I am a child of the day and of the light. That's what's going on internally, externally, nighttime. Nighttime. And this is very interesting, but in Song of Solomon, chapter 6, 
there's a great type that is kind of spelled out there. The church, and forgive me, I don't have time to break it all down, but the church is pictured as the moon. Jesus, right, as I've just pointed out, the sun, S-U-N, is a type of Jesus. Now, you see this in many passages. Psalm 19, Malachi 4, and, other, and, and, and Matthew 17, his face shown as the sun. Revelation 1, you see that. His, his face shown like the countenance. His countenance like the, the sun shining in his strength. That's how it goes. Jesus, pictured by the sun. The moon, right? The church is pictured by the moon. The moon reflects the light of the sun. But the moon is up when it's nighttime. So as, while the church is in the world, we are in a, when we're looking at the timetable of spiritual history, we're in a period of nighttime. But the day is at hand. What do we do about it? Cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. Let that light that is within you shine in this age of darkness. Verse 13, let us walk honestly as in the day. So we take that spiritual reality that dwells within us and we apply it practically in our external lives. Haven't you heard this before? That you take your standing and apply it so that it daily is your state. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting, which is a nut, that's the old English way of saying partying, living the party life. I understand we use the word riot as something slightly different, and that's also a bad thing, but rioting and drunkenness. So that's the party life. We stay away from that. We stay away from that. Not in chambering. Chambering. What's that? The Greek word behind chambering is koita, koita, which is where we get the English word coitus, which means sexual intercourse. Chambering, right? Yellow say kamer. Chamber is a kamer. That's when you rent a room for an hour. That's chambering. You know what I mean. Shacking up. Say, I made a commitment. I'm living with it. Mm, you're chambering. You're chambering. And wantonness. I, again, there, there's, a, there's much more to say about that situation. I, I, I just see a connection here. That's why I mention it. Not in chambering and wantonness. What, what does it mean to be wanton? W-A-N-T-O-N. A wanton person is somebody who has no boundaries whatsoever and will do whatever their flesh wants them to do. Whatever itch they have, they will scratch it. Paul said, come on, guys. we got to put that off. Not in strife and envying. We've got to quit fighting and arguing amongst each other and... Looking at how, looking at the fame and fortune somebody else has and wanting to steal it from them so that we can have what they have. Paul says, put that stuff aside. There's more important issues. Let the light of Jesus Christ shine. Verse 14, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. I find in this a, a perfect correlation to Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, goodness, faith, temperance, and so forth. You know what you're putting on? When those things are present, you're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're putting on the new man. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. 
this is such there's such a practical and, and important lesson to be learned in this. Make not provision for the flesh. Paul didn't say, don't yield to the flesh. Right? Now, in other places he does. But in this verse, he says, make not provision for it. Starve it. Now, I'm not speaking physically. You understand. I'm talking about spiritual things here. But if you know that you struggle with a certain temptation, then don't keep that temptation near your, in your proximity. Keep it as far away as you can. Don't provide the opportunities for the flesh to yield, or for yourself rather, to yield to the flesh. Make not provision for it. Don't feed the flesh. Don't, Galatians 6, don't sow to the flesh. There are certain things that you possibly entertain yourself with on a consistent basis that doesn't help you on to God. It actually slowly pushes you in the opposite direction. Those are the things where you want to examine your life. Listen, I, I'm not against taking in a, a nice TV show or a program or a movie or reading a, a book that is not of a spiritual nature. I get it that sometimes you want to just learn something else or just relax a little bit. I get that. But be careful that you are not putting something in front of your flesh that is going to that is going to entice it and push it in the wrong direction and end you up in a mess. Just be cautious. The flesh is very powerful like that. You give it an inch and it'll take a mile. Forgive me for the American measurements, but you understand the reference. Make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. It starts, right? Fulfilling the lust of the flesh starts with you making provision for it. Better to provide for the things of the Spirit so you can fulfill and yield, fulfill the, the, the desires of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Better to provide those things. All right, I, I had planned uh, to get into chapter 14 a little bit, and uh, I do see we have a few minutes to do so. Let me just introduce it because um, it will save me a couple minutes next time, but I'm not going to go through any of the verses so much. Let me just give you a couple of the terms, and you can be thinking on it. Chapter 14, we call, I call this the gray area chapter, or just the gray chapter. Paul is going to deal with all of the things that we would consider gray areas. Some things are very black and white, right? God says, this is right, this is wrong. And when, when it is spelled out in the Bible, we have our black and white. Very clear. The boundaries are here. But not everything is spelled out that clearly. There are gray areas. There are some situations in life where God says, yep, there's more than one right answer. Now, that shouldn't intimidate any of you, right? Matter of fact, it should do just the opposite. It should excite you a little bit to say, wow, then if I study and read my Bible, I will find out where these boundaries are and I will find out what the gray areas are and then I'll know what kind of emphasis to put on certain things. I won't condemn the guiltless. I won't be, ex I won't be uh, unnecessarily harsh on people just because we don't agree. You'll find out where we have to draw the line to say, listen, that is wrong, full stop. And where you can say, listen, we can agree to disagree. Sometimes that's the right approach. Not always, but sometimes. So we're going to read in chapter 14 about some people that are weak in the faith. What does that mean? 
to be weak in the faith, faith is when God reveals something. This is what God says. This is what God believes about it. That's the faith. To be weak in, in the faith is, is to look at what God said is right and go, you know, I, don't, I don't know if... He says it's okay, but I don't know if that's okay. Now, you say, why would somebody view it like that? Because sometimes society says that's not okay. And God says, yeah, it is. But the culture in which you find yourself convinces you, no, no, that's not okay. We don't accept that. It's against our tradition. But God's actually okay with it. Right? And then sometimes the reverse is also true, where God's not okay with it, and society says, it's perfectly fine. And that creates another dilemma. And we'll discuss that as we get into this chapter next week. But, but we will take our time next week in this chapter to discuss the three sources for standards. Right? God provides them, society provides them, and each individual also has his own set of standards. And we'll talk about how those standards are, are formed and influenced by God and by culture and what we should do about it. All right, so that's enough of an introduction for that. Uh, if you guys have any questions, you're more than welcome to slip them in as I pray, and I'll try to address them if I can. As always, you're welcome to contact me privately, but I appreciate you tuning in tonight. Father, thank you for our time to spend in this chapter. And Lord, what practical and good advice we've found here, Lord. Help us. You've, you've made it simple for us. Rather than giving us 613 commandments, you just said love one another. Lord, help us to recognize the time in which we live. Lord, uh, we, we need to take advantage of our opportunities to let the light shine. God, help us to be aware of the fact that sometimes the only, the only way somebody's going to see Jesus is in, in our lives. Help us to put Him on so that they can see, uh, see the Lord work. Father, I pray that you'd have your hand on each student as they go through this week. Anybody that's tuned in tonight, have your hand on them. Help us to take what we've learned today in church and in this Bible study and apply it. And I pray that you bring us back together again Tuesday night, Lord, with hungry hearts, ready to learn more. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, folks, thank you for your time.